Welcome to Menu Stories, a podcast where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. On today's episode, we have a lively discussion with chef partner Isaac Miller, managing partner Jay Bordalo, and bar manager Tim Hagney, three of the people behind Maven, one of San Francisco's premier restaurant bars that pays equal mind to its menu and to its bar program. Can we take the cocktail away from the bar scene and put it into the restaurant scene? And can we make the restaurant scene a little bit closer to the bar? And the goal was to straddle that bar restaurant basically 50-50 down the middle. Are we a bar with a very aggressive food program or are we a restaurant that's super lively with an awesome cocktail program? That was the original genesis. Maven sits on an unassuming corner in one of San Francisco's most unassuming neighborhoods, the Lower Hate. For those who don't know, the Lower Hate could not be more different than its showy, better-known sibling, the Upper Hate, sometimes called Haight-Ashbury, named after its very famous intersection. But for all that the Lower Hate seems to downplay, it's home to hole-in-the-wall longtime local favorites for great food and great beer, like Rosamund Sausage and Toronado. The founders of Maven have deep ties to music. They studied it, played it, and danced to it. So while Maven is certainly more upscale than some of these long-standing establishments that are way more punk rock than anything else, Maven has found a way to play to the tune of the neighborhood without feeling like a jarring chord that came out of nowhere. Let's have a listen. So we are here at Maven. Great to be here. Can each of you introduce yourselves and describe your roles? Uh, Yes, my name is Isaac Miller. I am a chef partner here and I take care of all the food and everything that comes from the kitchen. Uh, my name's Tim Hagney, I run the bar and uh, create the cocktail list. My name is Jay Bordolo, I'm the founding partner here and this is my dream. So where are all of you from? Are you from San Francisco or did you come here from elsewhere in the country? I am actually uh, just across the bay, grew up in Oakland and Alameda. I am from slightly further across the bay, I grew up in New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> what brought you out to San Francisco? Um, I, I came out here for like five days, and I, and I kind of fell in love with the city. I, I was ready for a change in Boston, and I, on a whim, I had a few friends, and they were all from totally different walks of life, and they all kind of found a home here, and I figured if all these different people all kind of descend up on the city and love it, then there's got to be something to it, and when I came out and visited, I definitely could see what they were looking at. I equally fell in love with the city pretty quickly. I grew up in the South Bay here, uh, school in Michigan, and I think as with Tim here, I had enough of winter. Um, visited the city one at time, I was like, okay, I know exactly where I'm going back to. Um, being this close to a wine country, a, a great farming and produce region, along with the ocean and the mountains, um, can't imagine being anywhere else. And the food scene is, I think, so spectacular here. Um, there's a lot of creativity, uh, a lot of competition, which keeps everybody on their toes. Um, it is fantastic to be pushed and drive and inspired so much. So um, can't imagine working anywhere else right now. So how did each of you get into the restaurant industry? Were you already into that before when you, you came out, out here? From oh, all right. Well, I was, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was real, I, I found an apartment in Boston, um, and I was living in New Hampshire at the time, so Boston was a big step up. And um, I hadn't I hadn't landed a job yet, so I kind of was just walking as far, just dropping off resumes at any place that would look like they would take me. And eventually, I walked into this like really old school um, martini style bar, like like the, you know, like the the blue and purple color like martini glasses going out all the time. And I applied there, and this like 
crazy guy with this like super thick Irish accent. It's like, listen, you don't need any experience. I'm not gonna try and do his accent, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm gonna train you anyway. So uh, how about you just start tomorrow? And I wound up working there. He originally hired me as a server, and I immediately got demoted to host. So <laughs> that, that's that was kind of the way I got into the restaurant scene. I wound up working at that place and working my sneaking my way behind the bar. With me, I, uh, like I said, I grew up in Oakland and Alameda, and I was a little chubby kid. I would eat a lot. I was a little fatty. And, uh, <laughs> I was still kind of bar. <laughs> a little chubby. Uh, growing up, for me, uh, I had no exposure to restaurants. Sizzler was fine dining. And so I remember in high school, I actually applied and got a job at Sizzler. And while I was there, I started as a cashier host, worked my way up to the salad bar, and then into the line eventually. And one of uh, my cooks there was going to the culinary program at Laney College in Oakland. Through him, I learned about the CCA in San Francisco, and a girl I was dating at the time kind of gave me an ultimatum of getting my stuff together, and I was like, you know what? I am. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to be a chef, and that's how it happened, and so I went to school at the CCA and have been in cooking in the Bay Area ever since. And I think a lot of people can identify with Sizzler being fine dining when yeah. you were young and growing up, and you know. All you could eat shrimp. I remember my yeah. first salad bar that I got to have, 50% off. <laughs> Super stoked. Um, Bubba Gums was my family. Like, oh, we're nice. going to the city, we're going someplace special. <laughs> Bubba Gums. Uh, I think we were all there to have our stories of how we grew up, but um, the more we get into it and exploring flavors, again, um, it's kind of a, a rabbit hole. You don't realize how far it goes, and then once you're there, like, I can't imagine being can't, I can't imagine going back to Chili's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you still go back to right. Sizzler. We did take a field trip to Sizzler one time. as a team building event. Really? And we won't do that again. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, they were giving away free Malibu chicken that day. It was nice. <laughs> Trust balls in the kitchen? Or like, what? Basically. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of, okay. we, we used to do that uh, for a while there at Maven. We would, on Sundays, before our brunch program got taken off, yeah. a bunch of us that were up on, off on Sundays would get together and go explore uh, different places. And one day... We talked about Sizzler and they were uh, kind of teasing me a bunch about it. And so I was like, you know what? You guys don't know what you're missing. You got to go get the, the bottomless Texas toast and a bowl of ranch and their wings at the salad bar and just go to town. And so we did. And it was a bad choice. But <laughs> it was cool. <laughs> I think we all got food poisoning. It was awesome. Oh, oh no. Okay. No, yeah. <laughs> no worries. No one's pressing charges. No, no, no. no it was fun. It was good. Yeah. But it just, yeah. My metabolism was not the same as it was when I was cooking there yeah. as a young little kid. Yeah, I bet. Uh, how about Rio? How'd you get into the restaurant industry? Uh, originally got into food service, uh, working as a caterer, trying to pay rent. I think more interesting, though, was the story of transitioning from basically wine into restaurants. I was working at a vineyard and kind of waiting tables, trying to, again, pay rent while actually uh, the original music career uh, was trying to take off. And the music career didn't go anywhere. <laughs> and the restaurant career did have a lot more natural momentum. Um, and we started basically being more involved in wine, started sawing, getting into management. Um, and that career path just took off a lot more naturally than the music did. Um, however, I take a lot of um, the skill set from all the music upbringing, from um, putting the audience first, what's their perspective, uh, treating them as a guest in the experience, treating our staff as kind of a team that needs to do something highly organized, repetitive, repeatedly, but individually and personalized and seemingly artistic, and do it again and do it again and do it again. It's also a huge kind of music lesson. This is beautiful, this is artistic, and do it again repeatedly exactly the same. Um, those skill sets overlap a lot, and 
think the uh, the collaboration, the, the leadership styles, um, learned a lot from the music rather than from uh, all the upbringing in food service. Um, and then it's just beautiful and delicious. I think that there is I think such a passion in both in industries that relate related very e easily. So even though it's not uh, delighting the ears, restaurants to me are just as satisfying as music was. Um, and then taking a little bit further, that same passion also allowed me to create uh, our new spot, the Tipples Recording Studio, a new jazz bar that just opened up. Um, so that is kind of the true genesis of, cool, it's combined food and um, music in one spot. That's great. I would have never thought to connect music with, with food until you mentioned the repetition piece. That makes a lot of sense because obviously for those of us who were raised playing piano or whatever it is, you're kind of beaten into the practice all the time. Practice, like do it again, do it better, do it better, again, again. But from the audience's standpoint, it's seemingly supposed to be this brilliant, artistic, just cathartic expression of who, who we are that you don't understand the hours in the practice room. Right. And the same thing in, in the kitchen. Here's this dish, I made it just special for you, and it's made just perfect. And it took me the last four days to, pr to prep and dial in this dish. And I'm going to make it totally special and perfect and unique for you. And unique for you. And unique right. for you. Um, and that's seemingly artistic and craftsmanship. Um, that overlap, I think, is really interesting. Yes, it is an art form. And yes, there is a craft that goes into it. You can't have one without the other. Too much craft and it becomes boring. Too much art and it becomes sloppy and over passion. Right. We met with Zuni Cafe episodes ago and Chef Gilbert Pilgrim mentioned that you can't make a you can't say you know how to make a Caesar salad until you've made a hundred Caesar salads and throughout all of the seasons of the year and so it, I think there's something to that that you're kind of hitting on there. Yeah what is it Bruce Lee once said he goes I'm not scared of the man who has practiced 5,000 kicks once I'm scared of the man who's practiced one kick 5,000 times right and it's the same way with food like the craft is all about repetition and finding the beauty in the craft it can't be rote it can't be mundane but it's got to be passionate and beautiful every time you do it and then that gets reflected in the dish or the cocktail or the service. Yeah, absolutely. So how did all of you meet and how did Maven come about? Uh, well, Jay is the one that started Maven. Yeah, so uh, this is now four and a half years ago. Um, we, it was drafting um, basically a wine bar concept and realizing I was drafting a business plan in cocktail bars. So I was like, I think I'm doing this all wrong. Um, it was basically the height of the cocktail trend, like what can we do to make this more interesting? Again, coming from a strong wine b b background, can we apply some of the wine knowledge and basic palate knowledge to the, the craft cocktail scene? Can we take the cocktail away from the bar scene and put it into the restaurant scene? And can we make the restaurant scene a little bit closer to the bar? And the goal was to straddle that bar restaurant basically 50-50 down the middle. Are we a bar with a very aggressive food program or are we a restaurant that's super lively with an awesome cocktail program? That was the original genesis. Um, Isaac <laughs> and I found each other on Craigslist, and I'm going to throw him under the <laughs> breakdancing bus. So yeah, so uh, I was actually, um, I had just opened Sweet Woodruff. I was the opening chef there. And then um, after a couple months getting them up and running, I took a break, uh, took a sabbatical, um, and we just kind of like relaxed, like took some time for myself. I'd been cooking for, I don't know, at the point, like 15 years or something. Wow. And so my wife was in a good spot with her job. I took some time off and relaxed. And then when it came time to come back into the industry, I found an ad for uh, Maven, and they were looking for a sous chef. One of the things they spoke about in there, uh, one of the perks was a $75 monthly cookbook stipend. And so I was like, that tells me that they care about growth. And, and that's one of the reasons why I got into cooking is like the endless fountain of knowledge. If we go in 20 years, I still learn something new every day. 
And so I met uh, with Jay and I interviewed and we had a pretty good rapport, everything went well. He's very thoughtful when it comes to talking about food and his vision and everything. And so that just struck a chord with me. But then the one that, yes, he did throw me, I used to break dance. Um, and so my mom was a <laughs> dance. still did at my wedding. And, dance got teacher, so. <laughs> and uh, so I got into that growing up uh, in hip hop and uh, break dancing. And so he asked me that at the end of the interview. I asked him, I said, do you have any other questions? He goes, yeah, how'd you get into breakdance? I was like, whoa, I have that nowhere near my resume, nowhere near anything. How did you find that? So I was like, that's a pretty good sleuthing. Um, so that kind of like struck a chord with me. And that's how we, I came in here. And I remember my tasting, I did a dish that I did uh, duck leg confit that I cured with this uh, Nepalese black tea that I got from a friend who had gone to the Himalayas and he brought it back. So I cured the duck leg in this Nepalese black tea with cinnamon and then uh, confit it, crisped up the skin and served it with peas, blackberries, like braised little gem lettuce and a potato puree. So it was really nice, done done well together and like made a blackberry uh, uh, rendered duck fat like uh, vinaigrette with the duck sauce. So after I do my tasting, stodge for a little bit, a couple hours later, Jay sits me down and goes, try this out. So he hands me a glass and I try it and it tastes exactly like my dish. I'm like, what did you do? And he's just like, because this is my first exposure to pairing cocktails with food. I've always done extensive wine pairing and even a little bit of beer pairing at that time, but I've never done cocktail pairing. So he explained to me uh, the balance and how you kind of like bring down alcohol levels and he infused the mezcal with black tea and then he used Swedish punch, which unbeknownst to me, on the label even says it's traditionally served with the Swedish pea and blackberry pie. And I had just done peas and blackberries because my grandfather had a blackberry patch and he also grew peas in there. And so one time I was cleaning peas and they smelled like blackberries. So I was like, why not? Let's do it. Wow. And so, yeah, so that was like, blew my mind. Like four hours later, I had a drink that was like right on to what it was. And so that, that's kind of what brought me in here. And it was, my whole career has always been ultra fine dining, Michelin starred uh, cuisine or, uh, you know, aspiring to do Michelin starred food. And so having a place where that same mindset is involved without any kind of pretension, no tablecloths, everybody's having a good time. We're a casual neighborhood spot that people enjoy working and enjoy coming into. And it's, yeah, that's, that's how I get I actually, when I when I came out here, I was, I was mentioning earlier, I had a whole bunch of friends that moved from Boston out here. One of them was Selena, who's currently the general manager here. And um, while I was out here for five days, she's like, why don't you come through and stodge and just see see if you like it out here. And I they've been stuck with me ever since. Yeah. <laughs> kind of found my way into the bar and didn't leave. So, dumb question. You can stodge. I thought stodging was just something that chefs do. Is stodging something that everybody, like any role I mean, in the restaurant? I mean, we, we stodge do? everybody for everything. Wow. We, yeah, you don't, you don't. We, we never employ anybody. I can't think of a time we've employed somebody without asking them to come in and, and, and work and see how they worked. Yeah. I think that I interview process goes both ways. We want to try to build a team that is in sync with each other, understands each other, and just kind of gets the approval of the team to, to be uh, hired uh, as well. Um, and also we want all new hires to fully understand what they're getting themselves into. Like, is this a place you want to work? Because um, we're about to invest and train and bring you into the family. And if you don't want to be part of the family, you can figure that out in about three hours. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you can learn a lot r really quickly. Um, so that's a great thing. I think in general, we try to take and um, steal ideas from wherever we can. Um, and that's interdepartment, but even outside of the restaurant industry as well. As you mentioned, uh, saging in the kitchen is kind of the most common thing. You work around various different restaurants. Like, why can't the front house do that same idea that the kitchen does. Let's, this is a good idea, let's use it as well. So yeah. it doesn't matter where the ideas come from, if it's a good idea, let's... Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you just learn a lot more about somebody who's standing up and sitting down. So I, I flew back and I, um, 
They didn't give me an answer right away because they, they like, to, like to make me sweat. But like <laughs> two, two months later, I got a call back saying, hey, do you want a job? And I was like, actually, my lease is almost up, so I guess I'll hop a plane and fly out to San Francisco. That's kind of how I landed here, yeah. It was two years ago, right? Three oh, years. Almost three, yeah. Three years this September. Yeah, yeah. This is Rebecca Goberstein, and you're listening to Menu Stories, a podcast where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. We'll be right back with chef partner Isaac Miller, managing partner Jay Bortolo, and bar manager Tim Hagney of Maven. looking into my other neighborhoods um, and then get, got a flyer for a restaurant that was available for, for sale um, and it needed to move pretty quickly and we had a lease on the table within seven days of walking in so it went from an eight-month hunt with basically zero activity um, to a very very quick okay here we go we're doing it now and Lori has been fantastic um, the amount of entrenched and kind of long-standing neighborhood here is really wonderful and really warm. Um, the Lower Haight, I should say, at the time, four years ago, was definitely not as cool and hip. Like, the mission was exploding, um, and Lower Haight was just a little bit older, a little bit smaller. But because there's that sense of community and people haven't moved out of here, it's been wonderful and warm, and the neighbor, neighbors have been great. It's actually been the best clientele I've ever worked with, for sure. Um, dealing with some of the neighbors has been fun. Um, telling neighbors, we're moving in, we're here for a while, we're on a building community, we're here for 10 years, and they say, well, I've lived in my house for the last 37 years. Like, okay, that's long term, <laughs> you win. And so, but it's been really, really warm, seeing um, the neighborhood kind of change a little bit, um, more stores have been o- opening up here. And then Lorhead also has such a warm memory for so many people in San Francisco. Yeah. It seems like everybody lived in this neighborhood when they first moved to the city when they were 22. And so everybody has this fond memory. It's like, oh, I always was that tornado. Like, yep, it's yeah. still there. <laughs> um, it hasn't changed. You've gotten older. <laughs> um, but there's everybody's been here, and everybody is familiar with it. Um, yeah. We were glad to offer something new both to the city and to the neighborhood. Uh, Lower Haight never had, I can say, a cocktail bar before us. The closest thing would be Molotovs, and that's not quite a cocktail bar. Um, so it was something yeah. new. So it was something different. We elevated the neighborhood, but in a really delightful and warm and personable way. Yeah. Yeah, I will say, I mean, I've been here for eight years now, and I think this is one of the neighborhoods that's probably changed the least in the city, which I personally love. The the mission's changed a lot. It's still definitely a neighborhood. I mean, I live live three blocks down, I say hi to ten people on my my walk here. It's just like, it's everybody, you know, you see the same faces over and over and over again. I I actually moved up from the mission uh, over here, and, you know, the mission mission just doesn't have this sense of community that I feel like Lower Haight has. I'm sure it, it, it does in its own parts, I'm sure, but, you know, this street in particular, you just know everybody within a, within a month of moving here. Yeah, and I think, I mean, to your point, Jay, there, there's not that many people that move out. <laughs> so it's actually kind of hard to find a place to even live here because there's, like, one apartment that ends up opening up every yeah. couple months or something, <laughs> it seems like. Um, and it, it kind of has everything, and I think with that sense of community that there's truly a personal connection that is connected to people. Um, like I, with him, I used to live in the Mission, and I was connected to places. Like, cool, I had my favorite taco shop and my favorite coffee shop, but I didn't know anybody there. Yeah. And here in the Lower Haight, we actually know people and know faces, and we're able to build a personal connection. I think that's been 
both fantastic for our style of restaurant, wanting to offer something, yes, delicious, yes, wonderfully and crafted prepared, but also want to have a, a good time that comes um, with kind of a warm hospitality. We want to say hello and want to have a smiley face and look right. forward to seeing the, the regulars who can come back in. Um, I think one thing that we all mention is the amount of regulars that we have here that know us um, and who also call, calls out our new hires who are like, who are you? You're new. I've been here longer than you have. Yeah. Um, and that's fantastic that the, the regulars feel like it's their restaurant. Right. So switching gears to the food and, and the cocktails and what you guys actually you know sell here. So you mentioned that the menu and the bar program from the beginning was intended to be 50-50. From my memory, which could be way off, this probably was one of the first bars in the city that really tried to do that. There aren't. There's a couple probably like Zuni would probably be one um, that's obviously been there for quite a long time but there aren't too many other restaurants in the city that really prioritize the cocktail program as much as the food was there anything that was local that sort of inspired you or did that come from maybe another city or, or where did you come up with, with that concept there was a huge surge in the cocktail scene at that time this was basically right after Burberry Branch opened up or Beretta was open and I think Beretta was probably a lot of the, the genesis of the cocktail scene. Um, and like, this is a great, fun, lively spot. It does cocktails, does food. Let's take that same energy, apply a little bit more creativity, and have the menu rotate um, over a lot faster. Take it out of the Italian tradition and bring it into California. Mm -hmm. um, that was probably going to be the closest kind of model. And then seeing right after that, Trick Dog opened up with Travels Online. There's been a lot even more places recently the restaurants have opened with stronger bar programs. You can look at Tosca, even Marad, the bar is taking more and more of a um, equal footing to the kitchen, even though those are definitely substantially restaurants. Um, I think we still probably straddle that line the closest. Um, I think equally because to be a bar, it's not only to be cocktail forward, it's also to be lively um, and to be an energetic space to meet new people. And that, we can easily say oh, Tuesday through Thursday, the amount of dates that are in this is both really, really fun. It just creates that lively flirtatious, everybody has their hair in it and looks good. Um, <laughs> but there's just a huge flirtatious um, energy that is required. It's not like, hey, we're going out for a meal and meet my parents, let's have a sit down. It's more like, let's just have a few drinks and have some fun and laugh. Yeah. Um, and that has helped us retain that kind of the energy that the bar scene needs. Um, and then the kitchen's been putting out fantastic food. Um, and I think with Isaac here, that's kind of been constantly like, yes, we can compete at a restaurant level. It does serve a full meal. Um, and since we've opened almost consistently, the kitchen has been able to put out, say, more and better product and take it more towards the restaurant side. So it's not shifting the balance between bar and restaurant, it's just able to do more of both, which is fantastic. So how do you both come up with the concept for the bar program and for the menu? Because obviously it sounds like pairing is something that you it's, guys think about yeah. a lot. It's a lot of dialogue. <laughs> it's a it's, lot, it's of, a lot yeah. of talking. <laughs> yeah, we like, he, he's, like before we played it anything, we're, he's talking about what he's thinking about putting in a dish. I'm thinking about what's happening seasonally that I can incorporate with that. He's throwing out, this is what's in this recipe. I'm like, oh, is this similar to, what, what region is that from? You know, I'm, I'm thinking like, latitudes and we're right. thinking about like like kind of how all those things work together across the world and what supports one another like we like if when he puts down a dish if my cocktail 
is like a Moroccan style cocktail and he's doing like a Swedish style dish. Everybody's gonna look at it like we're crazy. Yeah. yeah. So we, we definitely try and be clear on where where our thoughts are coming from and when, where they kind of meet. Yeah, we definitely, we work in tandem. Um, and like he said, it'll be either I come up with a dish and he counters the cocktail or vice versa. Um, Tim is incredibly creative and inspired with a lot of his stuff that he likes to do. And so that, I play well off that. Uh, I go to the market a couple times a week we're definitely driven, I'd say, the source of the inspiration comes from the season and what's available. And so that's like the first and foremost, like what's happening right now, what's hot. Like this year is weird. A lot of like spring vegetables are like ending prematurely. Uh, some berries are having a tough time right now. So that's kind of adjusted like the time frame of what we normally can put on the menu. Um, but usually, yeah, like you said, we'll have a dialogue going together. Uh, we usually try and meet at least like once or twice, uh, once every couple weeks to just kind of talk about what's on the horizon. And then with that in mind, then it'll be like, like you said, okay, what kind of input do you think this spirit, uh, what was the last one you did? You made your own strawberry vermouth to yeah. go. Uh, to go with the pate, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, and it's kind of fun how that comes out. Like the, the, the whole combination of us working together and throwing ideas, because he's thinking about things from a different perspective than I am. And so sometimes when you come together, I think the, the final outcome is actually even better than the individual parts. I will say, but most common language I think we find is wine. When we talk about a dish he's putting up or a cocktail I'm putting up, we're like, okay, what, what is this most similar or what, what wine would pair with this dish or what does this cocktail represent that would be represented in a wine? Is it acidic? Is it tannic? What kind of flavors are being presented? And I think knowing that the, the food and beverage pairing as a whole has been around for a very long time. Let's look at tradition, let's uh, climb on somebody else's shoulders and not try to reinvent the wheel every time. I think they will both attest to the amount of R&D trials is at first kind of fun and then gets a little trying, especially when like I have to print a menu right now, let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But there's, again, as Tim said, like the wine's been around longer, it's been paired with food for a while. How can we take that lesson and kind of break it down a little bit? Do we need something high acid? Do we need something so sweet? This problem's been solved before how did they solve it? And then now, how do I solve that same problem with a bottle of tequila? And that is a unique challenge, or at least we know what target we need to hit, rather than just kind of swinging in the dark. Right. So how does that actually work? Like, so say you went to the market, you, come, you came back. Yeah. How so does that work? For instance, today I went to the market, and I saw so summer squash is starting to come in, eggplants starting to come in, tomatoes are coming in really good. So Tim came in today, and we started chatting up, and I said, hey, here are the things that are coming in that are looking really good. Uh, here are the, the items that are going out that aren't looking too good. You know, spring onions, green garlic, asparagus, is, is, it's all on its way out. So it's like, okay, we need to switch up. I'm thinking about switching up. We got to do, we got a spring onion soup right now. So we're actually going to move into a different direction. My sous chef, Merrick Schultz, is amazingly talented, and he spreads his wings in the kitchen as well. And so he's working on a stone fruit dish with like a roasted peach vinaigrette and like creme fraiche and almonds and stuff. So I'll throw that in there as a, as a substitution for the soup. And then Tim will take that and say, okay, I got a flavor profile of something I can work with, and then kind of take the cocktail in the direction that needs to go. Yeah, and I'm, I usually don't start building the cocktail until I taste the fish, because there's, there's way too many variables <laughs> yeah. before yeah, before I start pouring off the back bar. You're welcome, kid. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're looking at not just like the flavor profiles that you're yeah. talking about, but the balance of like the four elements, like the salty, sweet, sour, bitter, the umami that's in there, the heaviness of the dish versus the lightness, the acid balance, the heavy, the richness of the dish. So all those things factor into the cocktails. So typically, the next step will be 
do you have an idea? Yeah, I got an idea. Can you make that up soon? Sure, yeah, I can do that. Okay, cool. Then when we have all the ingredients together, we'll put the dish up for Tim to try. Tim tries it. He puts together a cocktail that he thinks is going to go with it. We have a, a, a blueprint of where we want to go from there. And then one of my favorite things about this is when Tim comes back with a cocktail that doesn't quite go with it, but then I am like, wait, if we tweak our dish, then we can actually make our dish better or have an idea for the dish of an ingredient that I didn't include because I didn't think about it until I tried this cocktail. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so, that's awesome. Yeah, it's just constant back and forth. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I think there's a fun dialogue about what that pairing is, trying to get the cocktail to be in the correct realm of the same dishes playing in. But then can the cocktail bring in a, a new flavor, a complementary flavor, or a flavor that was not necessarily absent in the dish, but adds in that one uh, other new flavor. So there's still a synergy and reason to keep going back and forth. Yeah, there's often times, like uh, Thomas Keller put it, he said that, um, you know, after about three or four bites, your mouth gets tired. Um, so that's why, he, and I've, my whole history has all been tasting menu type style. And also another way to look at it is Greg Coons talks about how texture and mouthfeel can like break. You put texture in there because if you're eating something that's delicious, but it's just creamy, 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 when you have something that's crunchy, that's going to break the monotony and your palate's going to switch up and then it's going to be a refreshing new bite. That's also another avenue that we can take with the cocktail pairing something that'll balance out the dish that they have yeah. and that just makes it even better one of my favorites is when like what was that last one you had getting goosebumps talking about yeah uh, <laughs> uh the sorrel sugar that you were making or the savory oh yeah savory yes. shrub savory savory shrub yeah we did like a pisco pisco sour rip to go with um it was gnocchi it was the gnocchi yeah, dish yeah. and the, it was sunchokes yeah. uh, with the parmesan sunchoke cream and parmesan and uh, just sprigs of dill on top looked like little fallen christmas trees over the parmesan snow and the dish was good, and the cocktail was good. But when you tried the dish, and then you tried the cocktail, and you went back and tried the dish, it was like, whoa, the dill just jumped out because of the herb in the shrub that was in the cocktail. Yeah, and the acid. That's, that's why I love this. Wow. That's what's so much fun about this, is like trying it all together. It's like, whoa, that's way different, but it's the same thing. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that process. I oh, no, don't think, cool. I think you just blew everyone's mind. Um. Put your hats on. Oh, we should have said that first. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's going to blow your mind. <laughs> so what has been, um, what's been the most challenging thing about your jobs? I mean, I think for me, the most challenging and most rewarding is just you have so many personalities behind the bar and on the floor and in the kitchen and just kind of making everybody jive. Is, um, it's, it's tough, but it's fun when it works. It's really not fun when it doesn't work, so you got to make it work all the time. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I used to play with like a like a punk band in Lowell, in Lowell Massachusetts, and we were. I can say this now, objectively, like ten years later, we were awful, and we always made the joke that you know, the, the your band is the dysfunctional family that you choose. Like pe people people that come into the door to work are kind of like the dysfunctional family that choose you here. But like yeah. the idea is to make it as functional as we can. That's definitely the hardest but most fun part of working in a restaurant, I think. Side note, kind of cool music theme here. Do you and then break dancing. We've got the whole like, we've got yeah. the break dancing, the the like punk band, and then music like theology basically. <laughs> <I was laughs> <actually, laughs> theory. For two and a half years there, I was on the longest running hip hop show in the country. <laughs> wow. In the world. The That's drum. Amazing. The drum. That's yeah. so cool. Kevin Kev, he's a local DJ. He uh, started it at Stanford in 1984, and I remember I was I was a longtime listener from like the 90s, and then wow. sometime in like 2005, I want to say 2006, he was like, hey, I still need an intern. <laughs> I was like, called him up, and I was like, I'm down. <laughs> so yeah, that was cool. Yeah, it was good. Wow, that's great. Um, most challenging thing to piggyback on Tim uh, is for personnel. Um, almost the hardest thing of running any business is for personnel, finding the right people um, often enough. Yeah. 
challenge. That's only gotten harder in San Francisco. But once you find the right people fighting for them, treating them with respect, making sure that they feel valued and wanted, keeps everybody motivated. Um, and also, I think just explaining that end vision of here's why we're working so hard. Um, here's let's make some people happy. Let's make the, the guests happy. How do we do that? Focusing less on let me say some of the simple mechanics, but on that end vision, and then allowing. Hopefully, you find good people, explain the end vision, and they figure out how to get there. That's the part that's really, really rewarding. The hard part is some of those mechanics. You're like, cool, I got to find a server on a Tuesday night. I'm struggling here. My schedule is full. That's the frustrating part. Yeah. Um, but finding, having a new hire who just learns really quickly, has a strong aptitude, and bringing um, a fresh perspective and you know a, a new playlist, a new personality, and jives with everybody else is so rewarding. Yeah, it's working passion with somebody else is like that's really fun like when you see somebody else get excited about what we're doing that's I think the best part yeah, yeah. and I think we've seen that a lot and kind of re recapping on Isaac's story when he first interviewed here having everybody come in and say oh cool cocktail pairings nifty and then like no taste these two things side by side and say put your hat back on first um, <laughs> and seeing it like no that totally works I can't imagine without it that's really fun and it kind of says yes it was worth the work, it was worth the R&D time, if they do go better together, and we made something interesting and special. The most challenging thing about this, uh, in this profession right now in San Francisco is staffing. Uh, finding people that are, I guess basically because we are not fine dining, but we hold that same standard, mm -hmm. I'll either get somebody who doesn't have the refinement and the attention to detail that I need to put out the food that I want, or I'll find somebody that can do that but doesn't have much hustle you know you gotta find a way to get that other gear or turn the switch on uh, so there's that and just finding uh, people in general it's just it's super scarce right now it's unfortunate yeah. you know yeah I mean that has been like literally what everybody yeah. says I mean it's, it's been so tough the last year especially uh, I, think, I mean you have a huge uh, situation where there's a ton of incredible restaurants opening right. uh, we already have the most restaurants per capita in the country and then the pricing out, but I think also it's, I, I don't know if anyone's touched on this one yet, but the, uh, the with the school, the main school that we have, the CCA, going into Le Cordon Bleu, and then the quality of education dropping off, I think the quality of cook that's coming out of these schools now are pretty bad. I had yeah. someone who graduated, graduated from culinary school, did not know how to separate an egg. Even I know how to do that. <laughs> Rock on. <laughs> do you want a job? Because <laughs> apparently you can get a job. It's a place. You're now the best candidate. Well, do it. Uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of scary. Yeah. That somebody was able to go through a curriculum. When I was going to school, I went to school there when it was still a private, privately owned school. I was a for profit. I had to write an essay. I had to have a year's worth of experience in the industry before they would even interview with me. I had to have multiple interviews to be accepted into the school. It was prestigious, um, and it made me proud to be part of it. I was a, kind of a slacker in high school. I missed a semester of high school, like a whole semester. I had to, I had to do extra classes my last semester of senior year just so I could graduate. When I went to culinary school, because of the work it took to get in there and the esteem I felt, I didn't miss a day. I went in, I did everything I could to learn and grow. And I was able to step out and work at the restaurant I went to, it was a Michelin recommended kitchen. I was able to work on you know, a, a full station by myself heading out of there. I have yet to have a cook come out of school on their externship, able to do much more than just peel vegetables or do whatever. I mean, and then on the on the flip side, it has forced me to become a better teacher and mentor, and I do feel really proud. Every single one of my cooks that's here has either uh, started from school 
or was a dishwasher and worked their way up. And so, you know, I have two guys right now who are on their externship. One has been with me his whole duration of school, and he's like our lead line coach. He can work every single station. And then the other one who is in the same class is at very entry level. And so you can see the difference in the experience level of where it brings them. Just to piggyback on him, I think that's that's a huge part of how we've maintained the staff that we have. It's a move up through the ranks kind of style. The majority of the bar team all used to bar back here. I used to bar back here, like for the first week I was here, they're like, you might have bartended, you might have managed a bar before, but uh, you're washing dishes all night. Right. I was like, okay, that's the way it's gonna go. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. kind of from the ground up is, is, I think one of the ways we've been solving that problem. Right. And I think that's pretty unusual, even like in the non-restaurant industry here in the city, I think like people just want you for that role and that's what they need you to do and there's just no thought about moving up or moving No upward mobility, yeah. yeah. And I think critical right now if finding people is the hardest thing, Maybe we, we change the logic. Maybe we already found the person. Let's keep moving them up. Right. And that's a good way. But if we find somebody who is on board, understands the vision, understands the guest forwardness, wants to work hard, likes to be here, already on payroll and already trained, moving them up a rank is actually very easy. And so let's keep uh, having them be engaged. And finding new employees is hard, so let's focus less on that and more on retention. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what's been the most rewarding thing? So then it's almost an inverse of that. The most rewarding thing for me is seeing somebody who may not have a lot of experience or knowledge or schooling and come through our system and go on and be successful somewhere else. And like the growth that they put in. Like I have one who started as an extern within two years was able to be promoted to sous chef. And now she's at State Party. And she's holding her own there. I had another one, at a, it was a different place, but it was the same format that we had. Had no experience and ended up uh, being pastry chef at fifth floor back in the day when they were there yeah. and so it's like seeing that growth that was what makes me happy and one of my old two chefs got a top 30 out of 30 and they wanted to talk to him about Meadowood and he's like no I learned everything from Isaac Miller and wow. it's like that's pretty legit <laughs> so <laughs> yeah that's cool yeah that, that's what makes me feel good is seeing seeing the team grow and, and want to be part of this you know I think for me it's a you know I could I could say exactly what, it, what Isaac said seeing, seeing guys grow around you is awesome it's a huge feeling, especially like when you're watching their professional growth kind of like channel into their personal life and it's like turning into personal growth for them. That's huge. But I mean, I'm totally spoiled in that like the vibe here on Friday and Saturday night is so fun and so good. And like when, when you have a good crew around you and everybody in front of you is having a great time, that's like, that's what makes it fun to like do a bar deep clean. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you would bar deep clean so you can have fun on a Saturday night with everybody around you. The most rewarding for me is having a guest either come pull me on our side or kind of mention, this is a great restaurant. Everybody seems really happy here. How did you hire all happy people? And that the fact that we built a team who wants to work hard, wants to deliver that, and wants to show that smiley face and have that personality of the guest, and that the guests can see it, and enough that it's unique. They're finding it um, worth uh, commenting and worth remarking on. That's the value of being like, okay, cool. All the hard work that we do put into building the team and building the family, this upward momentum, and the training, the passion that we care for the people does translate to the table. Um, it makes somebody's night a little more special. It be it a first date or an anniversary or just a Tuesday night out with a mate, we made somebody's night and made somebody's life better. Great. Yeah, we, um, we had uh, Umberto Chibin and Chef Stefan yeah. on, on uh, the program too, and that was probably the first time where we heard somebody on the show talk about um, the impact of the service on the flavor of the food and the kind of the experience.
true if, if somebody's the server is like in a pissing mood, <laughs> it's just going to oh, yeah. totally ruin your night. Every piece of the restaurant and the bar and everything really impacts the perceived experience. Yeah, you you don't want to eat anything from Cranky Town. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a cranky town doesn't sound And on that note, thank you guys so much. This was a real pleasure. Uh, thanks for coming yeah. out and chatting with us. Yeah, good luck with uh, your fifth year. Thank you, Rob. Sure. You can learn more about Maven on their website, maven-sf.com, and visit them on the corner of Haight and Steiner in San Francisco. On the next episode of Menu Stories, we head to a Bernal Heights favorite, Emmy's Spaghetti Shack. Stay tuned. Subscribe to Menu Stories on menustories.com so you can get the next episode delivered to your inbox. You can listen on our website, iTunes, and SoundCloud, and be sure to find us on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. Special thanks to Patrick Wong, who edited and created the video for this episode. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein, and until next time, happy eating. Thank you.